to an inspirational teaching. We hope you enjoy this teaching. Shall we bow down our heads and look to God in prayer as we look to God's Word? Father, we thank you this afternoon, Lord Father, for your presence. We thank you, Lord Father, for enabling us to come here into your sanctuary to worship you, Lord Father, and to listen to your word. And we pray, Lord, as we bow down in your presence, Spirit of God, you would speak to us and enable us, Lord Father, to live by what we learn. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. The story is told of a man who was getting married, and before his marriage, he goes and meets the priest. And he tells the priest that I heard that there's something called wedding vows. And in those wedding vows, I heard that there is a section where you would say, do you promise to love this woman, to honor and obey her, forsaking all others, be faithful to her forever? Is that true? And this priest says, yes, it is true. And when that section comes, you're supposed to say, I do. And he takes out his wallet and gives a $100 bill to the priest and he says that I'm okay with everything else but when you come to this section could you just skip it the wedding is organized and the crowd comes in and the priest looks at the couple and then he starts the wedding vows and everything is going on and this guy says I do I do I do I do and it comes to a section where the priest asks him will you promise to love her always monetarily and physically obey her every command and wish Serve her breakfast in bed every morning, all of your life, and swear eternally before God and your lovely wife that you will never ever even look at another woman as long as you both shall live. And this guy had a lump in his throat and he swallowed it and he said, I do. And then he leans over and tells the priest, didn't I give you $100 asking you to skip it? I said, well... Just shut up and go back. Like, you know, she has given me $500. <laughs> Many times, people are so scared to enter into a covenant relationship. They're so scared to commit themselves into something which is permanent. And they're so scared to surrender their lives, their minds, themselves to something else. But in a fast-moving world like what we are living in today, we even have situations where we go to a website, we want to buy something, we want to buy a cloud storage, or we want to buy a new SIM card, or we go to Flipkart or something like that and buy something, and there is this fine print which comes in the bottom saying that, do you agree to our terms and conditions? You click on the terms and conditions, it's a two-page document. We hardly read it, but we press the button, I agree. And it happens very often. Don't we do that? without even understanding what we're getting into. I'm going to speak this morning on the importance of surrender and the importance of the word I do. We need to surrender to God in our lives. When we surrender to God in our lives, we understand that someone is in control. We acknowledge that someone is in control. We also acknowledge that somebody needs to take control of our lives. And because God, when He takes control of our lives, a lot of things change. In the world that we are living in, sin pervades and men rebel against God. 
and we're living in a rebellious society with we ourselves being rebellious by nature, it's important for us to change that paradigm and move to a place of surrender. In a place of surrender, there is victory. And I want to title today's sermon as Victory in Surrender. Many times the word surrender is not associated with the word victory. Surrender is associated with the word defeat. But in the spiritual realm, surrender to God means we surrendering ourselves to a place of victory, not a place of defeat. Jonathan Edwards said this, The deceitfulness of the heart of man appears in no one thing so much as this of spiritual pride and self-righteousness. Let me repeat that again for you. The deceitfulness of the heart of man appears in no one thing so much as this of spiritual pride and self-righteousness. If we tend to tell ourselves a lie that we can lead a victorious life based on our strength, based on our spirituality, based on our possessions, we are succumbing to deceit. And our heart is deceiving us with the lies from the devil. It's important for us to understand that there's someone who's much more higher than us, much more powerful than us. And surrender in today's world is not an elegant word at all. It's not a fashionable word at all. But surrender, those who don't surrender have a lack of knowledge of God. They are carried away with what the world has to offer. And many times when we surrender, people tell us that you lack a role model. You are not surrounded by people who are strong. Your network is weak. Your connections are not so strong. You don't have powerful people around you. And hence, you're surrendering to a force or a God or whatever we want to call it that does not exist. Religion or faith or surrender is a crutch for the weak-hearted. That's what many people say, but that's not true. The Bible says about surrender that it's a place where there is a deliverance that happens. The Hebrew word for surrender is a word called magan. M-A-G-A-N. Magan means to deliver up, to deliver. And the first time it was used in the Bible is when the ox were brought and the yoke was placed upon them, it says that the ox has surrendered to carry that yoke and to go with the purpose for which it has been sent out. The ox is a very powerful animal, isn't it? You cannot go and fight against an ox. The bullfighting is possibly one of the most dangerous sports that the world has. But here is an ox which is so powerful as that, and there is a yoke that is placed upon it, and thenceforward the ox obeys and does the will of the master. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 20, the word magan was used where it says, And blessed be the God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your land. How did those enemies get delivered? Is it because of the strength of those people who went and fought that war? No, it says, blessed be God most high. Who has delivered? It's God who has delivered them. That's the kind of God that we have. And the word that was used there for deliver, for those enemies, was to surrender. God has made those enemies to surrender to you. In the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 29, 
the Lord Jesus Christ says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The yoke that Jesus wants to put upon us, the responsibility of doing His kingdom work, the calling to be in His presence and enjoy the beauty of His presence, is really a wonderful thing. And he says, you will find rest for your souls in that place of surrender. And that's what God is calling us. Jesus is calling us. And in that place, there is not only rest, but there is also a beautiful change of mindset. Not only that, there's a beautiful garden that evolves where there's fruitfulness. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. It says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The word abide means to stay, to remain, to live forever in a certain place. And here it says, you have been born again, not of a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God. The world today debates between surrender and free will. Free will is so easy. I'd like to do what I want to do, what I think is right for me to do. And it need not be right for you. Let me just do what I want to do. Leave me alone. I don't need any advisors. But surrender is a place where we seek counsel, where we seek advice, where we seek guidance, where we submit ourselves to someone who guides us, who is much more powerful. And here it says in the Word of God that God has implanted a seed which takes control of us, and that's the Word of God, the incorruptible seed. And through that word, which lives and abides forever, we have been born again. Hallelujah. It's not a dead seed. It's not a corruptible seed. It's not a seed that produces weed, but it's a seed that is beautiful, which produces a wonderful fruit. In the book of John chapter 15, verses 1 to 4, the Lord Jesus describes himself of who he is in a beautiful, picturesque manner. He says, I am the true wine, in verse 1. And my Father is the wine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he shall cut. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he shall cut. He takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. It's a calling to surrender. It's a calling to abide. It's a calling to stick around. It's a calling to be part of that body. This morning we broke bread. The bread that we broke is symbolic of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, we are also called the body of Christ. We are all together in one body, not because of each of us, but because of who He is. He is the head of the church, and we are His body. And when we are in Him, the purpose for which we are in Him is to bear fruit. And the Word of God says here in John chapter 15, the word that we just read in verse 2, and it says that it may bear more fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
it does not talk about producing fruit, but it talks about bearing fruit. You see the difference? And that's the fruit of the Spirit. The seed is not our seed that produces that fruit, but the seed is that incorruptible seed, the Word of God. And we bear the fruit of God, the fruit of the Spirit. And we've been called for that purpose so that we are there as branches in that vine. And He Himself is that vine. And we surrender to be part of that vine. And we entwine ourselves there and we bear fruit. Now that surrender, that surrender, and, and those of you who know horticulture, you would find that there are some vines where you just take that and put it elsewhere. It will still grow. But God calls us to be there in that vine so that we bear His fruit. C.S. Lewis said this, God doesn't want something of us. He simply wants us. He wants everything of us. He simply wants us. Not something of us. We can't just be saying, God, I'm going to give you maybe my intellectual abilities, but this area of my life I'm not going to surrender. No, He wants everything of us. Dr. Charles Stanley said this, oftentimes, the more we surrender to God, the greater our ability to see His hand in our life. The more we surrender, the more He manifests Himself in and through us. I want to leave you this morning with three thoughts around surrender, three themes around the word surrender, and how we can apply into our own lives. The first is that surrender is agreement. Surrender is agreement. That's when I say I do to do what I never thought I could do. Let me repeat this. That's when I say I do to do what I never thought I could do. If God wants to do something through me, I agree with Him and say, yes, I would like to do it even if I thought that I could not do it before. Let's look at the life of Moses. In the book of Exodus chapter 2, verse 14, Moses has an encounter with a man in the land of Egypt. There were two men who were fighting there, and both of them were Jews, both of them were slaves. And Moses walks up to them, not as a Jew, not as a slave, not as a peer, but he walks up there as the prince of Egypt, as someone who was bred in the palace of Egypt, in the palace of the pharaohs. And he had authority. He had an army reporting to him. He had chariots under his authority. He had a bunch of other cohorts around him. And he walks up, tries to be a peacemaker there. But what this man said in verse 14 hit him hard. He says this, then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? And the reaction of Moses was, So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. Now that question that that man asked Moses was a very intriguing question which nobody would generally have an audacity to ask a prince. Who was that man? That man was a slave. There was oppression in that land. There were slave masters all over the place watching everything that these people were doing. They had productivity challenges. You go to the toilet, you've got to come back by this time. And every week, every month, there were challenges. You've got to make these bricks without hay. 
You got to get the hay on your own. You got to double up the number of hours of work. All kinds of stuff they were facing. They had no choice. They could not talk back. But this man had the audacity to talk back. And he hit on something which was very sensitive to Moses. Who are you? Who are you? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Now that question shook him up. Sometimes we face those kind of questions in our own lives, which can shake up our confidence. So much so that in the case of Moses, this shook up his confidence so much, he ran away from that place, lived in exile for 40 years, wandering, met up with a woman, married her, and he served her father, tending his sheep, lost his confidence, absolutely living like a shepherd, the man who lived like a prince. He was a warrior. He was well-versed with everything that Egypt could offer in terms of wisdom and knowledge. But that question shook him up. Who are you? Who made you a judge? Sometimes we are also accosted with questions like that in our life. You could be a CEO of a company. You could be a general manager. You could be a government officer. You could be a pastor. You could be a ministry leader. Or you could be a parent in a home. Or you could be an elder brother or an elder sister. Somebody comes up and asks you, who made you judge over me? Who are you? That can shake up your confidence. And in this case, the man was so shaken up. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, when God calls him on that mountain, reveals himself to him through that burning bush, a supernatural experience that he sees there. A bush wasn't burning, but there was fire around it. A distinct voice comes up to him telling that you're wearing shoes. Please knock them off. So this God that he was speaking to was not a blind God. He was a God who could see what he was doing, what he was wearing. And he spoke to him. And he tells him, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to speak to that Pharaoh. And I want you to deliver my people out of Egypt. The question that he asks, that God who was all-powerful, with whom he had an encounter, was this. In verse 11 of chapter 3, Moses asks, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? That I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? Who am I? He did not sit there and tell God, Yes, I agree with you, there's oppression in the land. I've seen it myself. I understand where you're coming from, God. And I think I can help you because I lived in that palace. I have connections there. When I go back, there are a bunch of people who will receive me. Maybe there are a bunch of people who are against me, but yes, there are a bunch of people who, are, who can receive me. He didn't say that. He was so shaken up in his confidence. He said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Of course, this man knew Pharaoh before. He said that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. About Moses, it was written in the Bible, in the book of Acts, chapter 7, when Stephen gives that account about his faith, he talks about Moses, and it says in verse 22, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. What kind of a man was he? He was a learned man. He was mighty in words and deeds. We grew up in Sunday school, learning that Moses was slow in speech. Of course, the Bible records that as well. 
in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. That only means that over a period of time, after that question that man asked him, after he went away into the wilderness, maybe, maybe, I'm just guessing here, Moses went through a nervous breakdown or a psychological breakdown. He lost his confidence, lost everything that was giving him strength internally. He was a broken man. And he says, I'm slow of speech. I'm not eloquent. But he was a man of mighty words and deeds when he lived in Egypt. He lost his total identity there. And then he says, what is it that I need to go and tell them? Who should I say has sent me there? In Exodus chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, when he asked that question, the Lord tells him, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. It was very specific. You shall serve God on this mountain. Now, it's not just across the border of Egypt, but on this mountain, which is miles and miles away. It means that you've got to lead them all the way here. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you will say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moses grew up in the land of Egypt, one of the most powerful civilizations the world has ever seen, which was a society which had polytheistic religion, which was embedded into their society. They had a name for every god. They had an idol for every god. They had a shrine for every god. But when he goes back to that land, the land where the Egyptians saw the most magnificent statues of the gods of Egypt, when he was asked to go back there and introduce this God, he says, go and introduce me as I am. I am has sent you. Well, that could be the most ridiculous answer Moses would have ever got. I'm asking your name and you're saying I am. And you're telling me, go and tell this to the people out there? You're kidding me? What are you trying to make, me or, make out of me? But Moses never, after that, asked a question again. He went ahead, and he did it, stood in front of the Pharaoh, introduced himself to the, to, the, to the Israelites, and the rest is history. He was willing to be in agreement with God in surrender. And he was willing to say, I do, to do what he never thought he could do, what he thought he was incapable of doing. Of course, he had compassion for the Israelites. He saw them suffer. And that's the reason why he went to bring peace between those two people there. His heart was there, but he never thought it was him who God would use for delivering them. But he surrendered to the plan of God. Would you be in agreement with God today? Would you do what he wants you to do? Though you have never done it before. I don't know what it is in your own circumstances. Each of us are chosen. 
What is He choosing you for? What is He speaking to you today? To do His will. It could be very personal. But do that in agreement with God. The second thing about surrender is surrender is acknowledgement. Surrender is acknowledgement. Because when I say I do to do what I would have never ever wanted to do. When I say I do to do what I would have never ever wanted to do. You acknowledge that He will give you the strength to do it. And His purpose will be fulfilled. Let's look to the Bible from the life of Joseph in the New Testament. The husband of Mary. The earthly father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In the book of Matthew chapter 1 verses 19 to 20 it's written about Joseph. Then Joseph her husband being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things behold an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying Joseph son of David do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19 says that he was a just man. The Bible records that he was a just man. Very few people have been given that honor of being qualified to be written in the scripture as a just man. Some versions even say he was a righteous man. The Bible says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. But this man, the Bible has recorded that he was a righteous man. But something strange happened. Everything was going well. He was betrothed, he was engaged, he was about to get married. But then he comes to know that this woman is pregnant. By whom? By his close friend? He would have said, okay, fine, I forgive that guy. I forgive man for what you did to my family. No. She comes and says that she's pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Hard to imagine, hard to digest. And the Lord revealed this to him through that angel. He never questioned after that again. Never do you see Joseph having a dialogue with God saying that, Lord, I can do it, but if it is your will, please let this cup pass by. No. The next thing you know that he's packed up his bags and has gone to Bethlehem. Well, that journey to Bethlehem and that destination was not a pleasant place to go to because at that point of time, there was a census that was happening and everyone is supposed to go back to their hometown. And Joseph was going to Bethlehem. They were going to have an old boys reunion in the Bethlehem high school. And everyone was going to come there with their wives and their children and their girlfriends probably. And this man is bringing a, a lady. He says, hey Joseph, you're supposed to get married in the next two months. Oh, hang on. But I see this lady is already nine, nine months pregnant. What have you done? It could be a black mark on his character. And being a righteous man, he wouldn't have said that he's responsible for that pregnancy. He would have said that, no, 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 it's not me, but it's the Holy Spirit. Oh man, I'll... <laughs> this guy, you know, we knew him. He was always a nerd in the, in the class, but now he's gone nuts. Right? We never know. But he was willing to face it. He was willing to face it. And God had a plan and purpose in choosing that lineage. This child was born through that pregnancy was the man who would grow up and would say in John chapter 8 verse 7 to the woman who was caught in adultery 
the men who are surrounding there with stones, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone at her. Joseph in his divine wisdom and anointing, I think he knew that there was a greater purpose for that child. And into that lineage, Jesus was born. Such a lineage where in that lineage you had people like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. If you read the book of Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 to 16, you would find all these names. In Genesis chapter 38, Tamar slept with her father-in-law and bore a child. In Joshua chapter 2, Rahab was a prostitute. In Ruth chapter 1, you would find that Ruth was a Moabitess. And Moab was a son of Lot. And he was born to uh, Lot through an incestuous relationship he had with his daughter. And then he also had Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In that lineage, Jesus was born. And this man went into Bethlehem with his wife carrying the child. He was willing to face anything because God called him to do that. Are we do willing to do that as well? Are we willing to do something that we never thought we can ever do? Or we would not want to do, given a choice. Or we would not even see our worst enemy to do, given a choice. In the book of Philippians chapter 4 verse 10, Paul writes something very amazing. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at, your, at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content, for I know to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And then he says those famous words from verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Many times we take this verse out of context and we think that this is some kind of a superhero verse that we can do anything that we want. No, that's not what it is. What Paul was saying in the context of this verse was, I can live in poverty, I can live in hunger, I can live in surplus, I can live in abundance. I can be flexible in terms of doing anything that what God wants me to do. Is that something that you would like, you to, like to do in surrender? If God wants you to acknowledge and live for His glory, and calling you for a higher purpose, calling you to depend upon His strength and not your strength, and do something that you never, ever wanted to do, would you do it? Would you be a risk taker for God? It could be a calling for full-time ministry. It could be going back and restoring a broken relationship with someone that you have told yourself, I will never, ever go to that man again. I'll never, ever go to that woman again. I'll never ever go to that person again. Would you want to do that? If God is calling you to do it, would you acknowledge His presence? Is He calling you to do something that you would not want to do, but He wants to do? The Bible says, for His ways are higher than our ways. The third thing about surrender is, surrender is alignment. Surrender is alignment. That is, when I say I do to what you would have done. When I say I do to what you would have done. 
Lord, if you were there in this situation, you would have done exactly this. We are all familiar with this acronym WWJD, which is what would Jesus do? I think it's important for each and every one of us as we are the body of Christ and the Spirit of God lives in us and we carry His Spirit in us. We do exactly what Jesus would have done in a circumstance that we face. In the book of Acts chapter 5 verse 12, we see how the apostles fulfilled this. We looked at Moses, we looked at Joseph. Let's look at the apostles here as to what they did. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Every day, people were being added to the church, the early church. They were doing something different. And just as today's generation is called as a FOMO generation, even that generation was a FOMO generation. You know what a FOMO generation is? Fear of missing out. People would like to see what's happening there. They would like to get onto somebody's Facebook page and see what pictures they've posted there. They want to see their updates. If there's an accident, people want to go and see rather than to help. So, but here's a crowd, you know, which wanted to go and see what was happening there in Solomon's porch, and the church was growing. But let me show you where it all started. It all started in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, it says, Then he said to them, now this was Jesus walking on the beach that day, and he finds some fishermen with their fishing nets and their fishing boats, and he says to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. If you were sitting there in that boat that afternoon, what would have been your reaction? This guy, crazy guy, he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And these guys just walked away from that boat and followed him and the rest is history. Now that's like signing up that agreement where you say, I agree on the web page. The greatest startup venture in history was that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those people just followed the master. Today, when startup companies come to hire people, they would ask, how many ESOPs do I get? What about my retirement benefits? Do I have a retention bonus? And all kinds of stuff. But here, they cared for nothing. They just walked in for kingdom work. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what he's calling for. And these people did exactly that. And they went on to do miracles and signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. In the book of Acts, if you, you, you would look that in chapter 2, many miracles were performed. Chapter 3, Peter healed a lame man in the temple. Chapter 4, God answered Peter in the form of a miraculous earthquake. Chapter 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira being slain and smitten by God when they refused to give everything that they sold. And they told a lie. Chapter 5, you find signs and wonders continue to be done by the apostles. You'll see Peter healed many in various cities. You'll see in the same chapter, prison doors were opened by an angel. Chapter 6, you would find Stephen did wonders and miracles while serving food to the widows. Chapter 8, you would find Philip did miracles and signs. They were in complete alignment and surrender. Would you want to be in complete alignment and surrender? God is calling us to do that. Pastor encouraged us this afternoon to pray 
that we would manifest the same way like the early church. The early church was promised in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that you shall receive the power from the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria and to the end of the earth. It could be Australia, down under. It could be Antarctic. It, is, it, could, it could be a place where the Eskimos live. It could be even the Deccan Plateau in Bangalore. Things will happen. That's when we choose to do what Jesus would have done in a situation. There's a real story of a doctor who was called for an emergency surgery of a boy who met with an accident. He rushes into the hospital. The boy's parent was sitting there. The father was sitting there outside the surgery room. The doctor does not even give an eye contact. The man wanted to meet him, but he just rushes into this operation theater. Performs the operation. After four hours, he comes back. Doesn't even bother to say bye to him. He just said, nurse, just tell him that his son is fine, and he rushes to the car. The man was so upset with the doctor's behavior. He tells the nurse, this man is the most discourteous doctor I ever met. Please teach him some soft skills. The nurse looks up to the man and he says, sir, I just want to let you know, when he got the call from the hospital, he was at the burial ground conducting the funeral of his son. He stopped everything. The crowd is still there waiting, and it's getting dark. That's why he had to go back. What would Jesus do? Jesus would have done exactly that. And that's being in complete alignment with the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. When we have the mind of Christ, we would do exactly like what Christ would have done. As we close, I want to ask us this question. Why should we surrender? All of this is good, but why should we surrender? Why can't we depend upon our own strength? The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. He doesn't want us to be conquerors, but he wants us to be more than conquerors because he is the conqueror and he has already won the victory. Hallelujah. We don't need to go and fight, but he has already fought the battle. He has won the battle. In the book of Joshua chapter 6, you can go back home and read from verses 12 to 21. A very familiar story about how Joshua and his men went for the battle of Jericho and how they fought that battle. And the battle was fought in silence. All that they did was go around that city, doing nothing, not even talking to each other. Seven days, six days they did that. And on the seventh day, they were asked to shout and they were asked to blow the trumpet and the walls came down. Who fought that battle? It's the Lord who fought that battle. Scientists may say today that those walls came down because of the resonance effect. If that was the case, God would have asked them to do it on day one itself. They wouldn't have had to wait for seven days. God taught them something. Something that is written in 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 47. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. But the battle is the Lord's and he will give you in our hands. Was King Jehoshaphat saying that. Imagine going and standing to the, and talking to the enemy saying that the Lord will give you in our hands. We are not going to fight against you, but you will lose. Sounds foolish, but that's divine power. That's divine wisdom. 
And exactly that happened. They did nothing. And that's what God wants us to do today. To go and pitch that flag of victory in our battlefield. If it's your marriage which is crumbling, just take that flag of victory and plant it there. The battle is already won. All that you see on the cross have been nailed to the cross. The battle has already been won. Hallelujah. And that's why we don't depend upon our strength to go and fight, but we surrender to victory in Christ Jesus and we proclaim that victory. We have been called to proclaim the victory. We've been called to blow the trumpet. We've been called to proclaim the victory in the name of Jesus. That's the power of surrender. Romans chapter 16 verse 20 says, And the God of peace will crush Satan under his feet. Is that what it says? Under your feet. Turn to your neighbor and say, under your feet. Under your feet. Who defeated Satan? Not you and I. Jesus defeated Satan. The cross is proof to that because he was hung up on the cross as a sign of that victory over Satan. But he says, you will put your foot on the head of Satan and you will crush him under your feet. That's more than a conqueror. I did not fight him. I did not get wounded in the battlefield. But my Lord fought that battle. And he says, you are more than conqueror. Go. Put your leg on his head. Put your feet on his head. The grace of Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. That's what it says. Psalm 19 verse 13. It says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Sometimes we are worried about sins that we commit, certain sins that we don't have a control on. We think that we are facing a victory, uh, we are facing a defeat over that sin. But this psalm is so powerful. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. If sin should not have a dominion over you, you got to go to a place where sin has been defeated. Right up there on the cross you would find sin has been cancelled. The power of sin has been defeated and we are more than conquerors. If we surrender to the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. Hallelujah. And that's the prayer that I have for you this morning for each and every one of you. In the place of surrender is a place of victory. You go back and read John chapter 15 verses 1 to 11, you would find that Jesus has been encouraging us to abide in him so that he can abide in us. And he says in verse 11 that my joy may remain in you, which means that he wants to stay with us, in us, with that joy. The key verse here is remain. But sometimes we might end up, after experiencing all of this, in a place of complacency, in a place of pride. David experienced that. He started well, a man after God's own heart, fell into adultery, fell into deceit, fell into scheming. He sent Uriah to battle so that he can be killed. And this man can sleep with his wife. Saul had a problem. He started off after being anointed as king, he went and prophesied. But over a period of time, he was possessed by an evil spirit. It's important for us not just to start well in surrender, but to remain in that place of surrender every day. Amen. In the book of Revelation, when the Lord reveals the word for the church of Ephesus from chapter, from chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, the Lord read the whole thing. He talks about 
in verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And against the same church, it also says in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Question for you, how are you doing today? How are you doing today? Have you surrendered everything into the Lord's hands? John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But as many has received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name. Those of you who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you that this is not a logical argument that I can put forth in front of you saying that, you know why? What, if you surrender, this will happen. If you surrender, this will happen. This is how this will happen. No, this is a supernatural experience. I want to invite you to a place of surrender if you haven't done that yet so that God can cut through your life and do something wonderful. Supernatural cannot be explained in the natural. And that's only for us to experience. Those of you who have experienced God, and if you have walked away, if you have encouraged doubts, in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 3, it says in those days, the revelation of God was very little. Because there were few people who were, nobody was willing to listen at that point of time. If you have closed your ears, the Bible says, he who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit of God has to say. If God is calling to your place of surrender, please, surrender yourself this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. To know more about us, please visit www.adonai-ministries.com.